Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. As we continue in this Gospel, last week we took a break, and thank you for your grace and your understanding from last week. Matter of fact, if you look at the bulletin today, that's last week's bulletin. I don't know if you paid attention to that. Uh, but uh, with the ice and snow and other issues happening, uh, we determined it was best for us not to gather last week. So we pray that we're glad that everyone got through the thaw and that you are here again this morning. I want to thank everyone who helped out, uh, Tony. And we have another gentleman who has visited before. His name was Philip, who came out, and the three of us were out here shoveling ice and snow during the week, trying to stay ahead of it. But then that Thursday and Friday into Saturday, it just got too much ice. Matter of fact, right out here uh, Saturday afternoon, there was about three inches of ice as you were walking in the doors. As, the, as things were melting off of the roof and pouring down, we just couldn't stay ahead of it, okay? Um, and so that, it was just wise to keep everybody at home and glad that you made it out safely, amen? But this morning, let's look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. And before we do, I want to ponder something as you're looking and meditating over this text Uh, this passage of Jesus at Gethsemane. One of the greatest sufferings for the human mind is isolation. I mean, while, let's just admit, physical torture is certainly great suffering, okay? But isolation is the greatest spiritual suffering. Penitentiaries know this because they put the harshest criminals in solitary confinement. Secular psychologists argue that being alone will cause great harm to the individual psyche. And it does. From a biblical perspective, the psyche is also argued to be the soul. Even the great philosopher Aristotle argued that the Greek word that we get psyche from is the soul. Furthermore, English translators of Scripture often translate this same Greek word that we have for psyche as soul. Often in the New Testament, when you see the word soul in English, it's translating the word suke, which is where the root for psyche, the mind, the essence of who we are, the soul. So biblically, I think we can see that isolation from God the Father is the greatest torment of the soul that can also be a turning point back to Him. We can further see this biblically, that the soul is life. And Jesus' soul, His very, the Greek word, suke, was tormented, and His body tortured during His great suffering and His crucifixion. It was His mind and His body, His soul and His body, all in great torment. While Jesus suffered tragedy in his final 24 hours, he suffered pain and trial. The greatest suffering that he endured was the temporary separation from his Father in heaven. That's what we're going to see here. It was this, it was a cosmic reality of separation and this cosmic reality of isolation from the Father that Jesus' torment more than any other physical pain. His torment was more there than his physical pain. Just as the disciples, as we looked at the last time, 
His disciples would enter into a season of temptation by being isolated from the hand of Jesus. They were going into a season of temptation as Jesus was separated from them and Satan sifted them and tortured them and falsely tried them. Same thing happened to Jesus. He would be sifted during this temporary isolation from the Father on the cross and He endured agony there. I mean, His tormented soul, it, it was surrounded by torturous physical abuse. And while facing the terror of isolation from the God the Father, He cries out to Him. We see this in Matthew 27, 46. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word as we read verses 36 through 46 and listen to the account of Jesus in Gethsemane and just listen to His tormented soul. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father God, we pause at the reading of your word and as we meditate on this account of your son and his agony and grief, his tormented soul pouring out before you. I pray, God, that you would cause us to understand the cost of our sin and our isolation from you as we witness Christ and his agony over that same isolation. Help us, Father, to hear clearly Use this time, Lord. Use your word to permeate our souls, I pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Jesus, when we look here in verses 36 through 37, He taught His disciples to pray. Remember back in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, He taught His disciples to pray. And here in Gethsemane, I think we could argue that Jesus is having a second lesson on how to pray. He taught this second application of that prayer that he first taught in Matthew 6 here. When we look at the prayer of Gethsemane, 
and all of Jesus' actions, he's living out the Lord's Prayer. He's not just speaking about it, he's living it. Jesus' call to prayer in Gethsemane was a prayer of suffering. It was a prayer of sorrow, right? He lived out in prayer that night what he taught about prayer throughout his entire ministry. Notice that Jesus wanted his inner circle of three, just three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. He wanted them to pray with him that night. Jesus longed for the presence of his disciples. He did not want to be alone. Jesus longed for the presence of his heavenly Father. He did not want to be alone. Jesus longed for support during his greatest time of anxiety, his greatest time of grief. We look here in verse 36 to 37. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The sorrow here was an intense grief, and his troubled soul was an extreme anxiety. When you translate the two words there, You could say that his sorrow was grief. His troubled soul was anxiety. The New English Bible that Daniel Busey loves translates verse 37 as horror came over him. Horror came over him. Even the King James translates verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Anyone ever experienced that in your soul? Jesus' soul was heavy with the burden of horror and his soul was heavy with grief in the great suffering that would be coming in the next hours. The Gospels record one other time when Jesus was alone with these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Remember, it was a special time and place when Jesus' divinity was most clearly revealed. Back in Matthew chapter 17, we see that Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the mountain of transfiguration where God the Father... A voice from heaven spoke and said this, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. That was, the, uh, that was one other time that Jesus was alone with these inner circle of three. There, He was revealed to be a, in divine nature. Now He's going to be revealed in His human nature. So just as he took the same three with him and took him along, took them alone with him to a place of prayer in Gethsemane. Jesus' divinity was on display again at the Mount of Transfiguration, and here Jesus' humanity was on display in Gethsemane. We get the impression that these three were near Jesus during this time of anxiety and prayer. Look at it in verse 37. Jesus was the leader, think about this, he was the leader of a vast network of disciples by this time. Remember, great crowds, the scriptures tell us. He had to be the strong shepherd, the model shepherd for all of his disciples, not just the twelve, but for all who were following him. He was the model shepherd. He was the great leader. Jesus could not always show his human weaknesses. Discretion dictated the wisdom of when and where Jesus would share his human weaknesses. Although there were times where Jesus' humanity was clearly on display in public as his emotions were strong and his physical body was weak, but he was a leader. This is why he went with only three, isolated himself from the others, 
and poured out his true feelings and his true torment to these three and to the Father in heaven. But Jesus' soul was tormented that night. He opened up to his trusted disciples, only the three that he trusted here. He says here in verse 38, My soul, which is that Greek word that we talked about for psyche, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He, wanted to, he didn't want to be alone, but he did want to be alone with these three. He wanted to be alone with the Father. The scene shows Jesus' wisdom here, that he only opened up his soul to a select and trusted few. I think there's wisdom here, isn't there? He opened his soul to only three of his twelve. He trusted these three. Three, and I, I, let's think about this. James, Peter, James, and John, these three were the strongest-willed men of his twelve. Matter of fact, uh, the, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, were also called sons of thunder. You remember that? And Jesus asked them to remain with him. Remain here, he says, and watch with me. Jesus' humanity needed their presence. He needed their strength. The humanity side of Jesus required some presence of trusted friends. Both Matthew and Mark shared the great pressure that Jesus felt in his soul. Matthew's account and Mark's account says he was very sorrowful or grieved unto death. Unto death. You ever felt that? You ever been in that level of deep anxiety and sorrow and grief and pressure? You, you really you just want it to end. And Jesus knew the death that was coming. He knew the death that awaited him soon in the next few hours. He knew and he felt the looming physical pain of death, but, he, but also the spiritual death that awaited him apart from his father. We see this again. Remember his cry of anguish on the cross. Where are you, Father? Why have you forsaken me? It's real. Luke's account in Luke 22 describes the physical torture that Jesus' deep depression took upon his body. I mean, now, although this passage is questioned by some scholars because it's not included in many of the earliest recovered manuscripts, the scene is still favorable to traditional Christian doctrine. Luke intentionally highlights the intensity of Jesus' emotional pain upon his physical agony. In Luke 22, verses 43 through 44, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. The Father in heaven comforted his son in ways that no close friend could comfort. The Father knew what the son faced. The son knew what the Father wanted him to face. And we see the result of prayer in this moment of agony, grief, and sorrow. An angel ministered to Jesus to strengthen him so that Jesus could endure the necessary grief and pain that was coming. Yet in no way does this expression of human grief and anxiety weaken or minimize Jesus' divinity, nor does it weaken or minimize his perfect humanity. Not at all. That's important to see. He was real with his inner circle of three. He trusted them. Jesus was real with his Father in heaven, and he trusted him the most. <laughs> 
This was Jesus' humanity at display. Now look here in verse 26, or chapter 26, verse 41. As he comes to the disciples after this first round of prayer. Now notice this. We have three rounds of prayer recorded here. Only implying that this was not just a one or two minute, okay, dear Lord, I'm sorry, I hate this coming, will you help me? It was a fervent all-night prayer session. Prostrate on the ground. And he comes back in verse 30, uh, 40 here. All right, verse 30, and going a little far, well, actually verse 40, and he came to the disciples after praying that the cup would pass from him. Verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? And then in verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This was Jesus' plea to his disciples, but I think he's also expressing what he was going through as, as well. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray against temptation. While God the Father sent an angel to minister to his son, that's what Luke's account tells us, the three disciples, notice what their response was. They failed their Lord by not watching out for him, by not watching out for the spiritual warfare that played out around them that night. I mean, Jesus called his inner circle of three to pray a specific prayer. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's the prayer he encouraged his disciples in. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation is a tool of Satan, the accuser. Temptation is that tool to draw God's beloved away from God's holy protection and embrace. That's what temptation is. Temptation in itself is not necessarily sinful. Can we say this from the pulpit and, and evidence from the scriptures as we're going to see here? Temptation itself is not necessarily sin. Satan tempted Jesus throughout his life. I mean, we see in Matthew chapter 4 the recording of three temptations, but that's just literary license to show that Jesus faced temptation throughout his entire ministry, his entire life. Jesus was tempted, yet he did not succumb to the temptation. He did not distance himself from God the Father because of the temptation. I mean, I, I think we can learn the lesson from this truth that how one faces temptation is either sinful, drawing away from God the Father, or how you deal with the temptation could be a moment of spiritual renewal and growth by drawing closer to God the Father. So temptation itself is not sin. How we approach it, how we endure it, determines the sin. Does temptation distance us from the Father? Or does temptation draw us closer to Him? That's the key. Being tempted, again, is not sinful, but, but the one tempting is to be avoided. Satan, the accuser, is the tempter. We are to avoid at all costs. It is only the accuser that tempts. God does not tempt us. Here's what we see in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. I love 
this passage sums up a lot of what Jesus was dealing with here. James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Notice here in verse 14. But each person is tempted. Here's when temptation comes, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own passions or desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's how we understand temptation. It's how we endure it. Do we remain constant and our face clearly up to the heavens toward God the Father at His throne? Or do we distance ourselves from His presence and succumb to the lust of temptation? All of us face temptation. There's not a single person in this room who has never been tempted. Temptation begins when you're a baby. Amen? Amen. Not all of us have faced temptation, and even here in Gethsemane, Jesus' disciples were not immune from that. Neither was Jesus our Lord immune from the temptations that night. His humanity faced the same temptations, perhaps even more intense temptations that we face. But that night in Gethsemane, it shows us the depth and the intensity of the temptations of Jesus that he faced. It, it, it overwhelmed him. His humanity was not immune to the torment of fear and the torment of agony and depression. Jesus' humanity lured him and enticed him to quit, to avoid this trial. But Jesus turned deeper into the comforting embrace and the strength of his Father. We must do the same. You see what Jesus is doing here. Notice how James, the brother of Jesus, speaks of the failed effort to resist temptation in James chapter 1. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. The King James translates desire as lust. A physical craving, a lust to satisfy the appetites of the flesh. That's, that's what succumbing to temptation is. When your belly is empty and you're starving to death and you have a temptation to swing into McDonald's and get a Big Mac, I don't know, have you earned that or are you succumbing to temptation? Which is it? See, where we're, see fast food taps into the human sin nature. Amen. Satisfy the cravings of the belly quickly. Remember that Jesus warned his disciples with him there in Gethsemane. What's he saying in Gethsemane? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's the human spirit. When we, when we look here in, in Matthew chapter 26, when he talks about the flesh is willing, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, some will argue, very few will argue, that really he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. But if you look at it in context, the, the, the majority view on this is he's talking about the human spirit. The human spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak as it craves to satisfy the gluttony that surrounds us. 
And gluttony is not just about food either. Amen? We often forget that the spiritual cravings of the soul, though, are more powerful than the cravings of the flesh. Our soul craves God's holy presence. And we can lean into that or we can turn from that. Our soul can even crave what the accuser, the tempter, is telling us about false, distorted power. That was the problem with the first sin in the garden. The flesh can overpower the spirit. The flesh can overpower the will. Jesus' soul here, his very will, was in torment in Gethsemane. He feared both the torture of his body and the torment of his soul. Theologians of the past called this emotional and mental torment melancholy. You ever heard that word? Melancholy. I like that word. Great men and women in Scripture we see suffered melancholy and depression and agony. It's a common trait throughout the great men and women of Scripture. Faithful, godly leaders are often overwhelmed and ready to quit because of the pressures of ministry and leadership. This is why one man can't do it alone, folks. Moses was grieved over the sin of his people over and over and over and over again. When you read the accounts of Moses in the book of Exodus and in Numbers, he, he's crying out to the Lord more all the time. Who are these people you've given me to lead, Lord? They're stubborn. Kill me now. I mean, that's a summary, but that's really what he's saying. The Scriptures speak to Moses' overwhelming anger and betrayal from his people. He cried out to God to allow him to quit more than once. His heart cried to God after descending from Mount Sinai, begged God to either forgive the sins of the people or, quote, to blot me out of the book you have written, Exodus 32. We further see evidence of Moses' depression and, and, red, and melancholy in Numbers chapter 11 as Moses laments to the Lord about he, how he was ever going to satisfy the people who were complaining that they had too much manna. Remember that scene? Numbers chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. Here, here's Moses' prayer. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, God, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. That's Moses. Crying out to the Lord because of the stubbornness of his people. Kill me now, he's basically saying. Literally. And it wasn't just once. It's recorded several times in Scripture. David, the king, wrote songs of lament as he battled deep despair regularly. The accounts of 2 Samuel chapter 12 reveals the deep grief and the agony of the death of David's sons who rebelled against him. Yet David's honesty to the Lord in that moment, it was not his honesty as a badge of honor, but it was an honesty before the Lord of his sorrow, it gives us a roadmap to drawing closer to God. David was drawing closer to God in his agony and his grief. He says here, actually Psalm 38, my guilt, has, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. And then in Psalm 13, oh, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? 
But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13 is one of my go-to psalms and has been for decades. In the deepest moments of grief and sorrow, Psalm 13, this is just my sharing with you, I'm opening up to you. Psalm 13 has kept me sane. Because you were, David is honest in that psalm of lament. How long, O Lord, have you forgotten me? But then you end that psalm with remembering God's faithfulness. Even in the midst of this sorrow and grief, God, you have not left me alone. We can even read Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, as she grieved and lamented the fact that she could not have a child. Her prayer was a model prayer of humility and sorrow and depression. You can imagine her depression because she was mocked by her rivals. Hannah's prayer shows her troubled spirit as she poured out her heart before the Lord. That's the wording in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 12-18. through 18. Job's suffering. We talk about the patience of Job, his steadfastness. This is a clear example of melancholy and depression in the most grievous of circumstances. We know the story of Job, the righteous man of God who lost everything, and he lost everything at the hands of Satan the accuser because God permitted it to be. And Job's tormented soul was so great that I argue Satan stirred up Job's wife, to encourage her husband in Job chapter 2, verse 9. Listen to this encouragement from Job's wife. Men, are you listening? Listen to this encouragement. Are you still holding on to your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. I think that was Satan going even further in tormenting Job by manipulating his wife to encourage him to quit. Elijah, the great prophet, again, he was discouraged, he was weary, he was afraid, and he was ready to quit his ministry. I mean, think about this. Elijah had great success in ministry over the prophets of Baal. God was with Elijah. But this greatest of the prophets hid in the desert, and he was defeated. And here was his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 19. This is, these are the words of Elijah. To God, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am not better than my ancestors. And even Jesus, as we see in Gethsemane, the pattern continues. Jesus faced a greater melancholy and a greater grief and anguish than any of the prophets. His prayer in Gethsemane shows us the greatest of all torment of God's greatest. This is the Son of God who was divine, yet He was also human, and His soul was tormented even to death. I mean, all of the great examples of depression and anxiety and grief in Scripture share one thing in common. Fear of failure. Fear of isolation. Fear that God has abandoned us. That's at the root of it. Depression, agony, mental torment. These are common struggles for spiritual leaders. And Jesus faced the worst of it as He faced the looming punishment and the torture of His crucifixion. And it's interesting that as we're going through this, what is one of the most common and most 
popular, here are my air quotes, popular forms of diagnosis for people's emotional state. There are agony and depression and fear. I don't, I mean, it, it's, it's blows my mind how bad we are in our society right now. I understand where it's coming from. We are isolated from one another. And depression and anxiety is running rampant. It, it really burdens me. We have people in the church. We have people in our culture. We have a generation right now that don't know how to cope. Amen? Amen. Can we encourage them to run to the Lord? Can we encourage them to allow us to hold them up and sit beside them and hold them and pray with them and encourage them? Isolation, if, let me say, if isolation is the source of anxiety and grief and depression, I think biblically we see this. I think practically in our time we see this. If isolation is the cause, what's the cure? Don't be isolated. Let's surround one another. Let's encourage one another. Now, with discretion, as Jesus is using discretion here with his inner circle of three, you just don't pour out your guts to anybody. That's what social media is for. And we see the results of that. Discretion. Why did Jesus suffer here as he did in Gethsemane? Here's, here's what I want us to walk through here. Yes, it's clear that Jesus was facing great anxiety and suffering. His disciples let him down to a large part, large degree. Why did Jesus suffer as he did in Gethsemane? Why? I think part of the answer is seen in his humanity, but I think part of the answer is also seen in his divinity. It's both. Hebrews chapter 5, if you wish to turn there, verses 7 through 10 help us see this. Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the suffering in part was a lesson in obedience to the Heavenly Father as our opening call to worship indicated. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Verse 7, in the days of His flesh... This was the time of Gethsemane. He's offering up prayers. And you know, what, you know what supplications are. It's a particular type of prayer. It's not just giving your list, a checkoff list of gimme gimme's. It's a, it's, a, it's a petition to the divine, the one holy God in heaven. A supplication is you are bringing everything that you are to Him. A supplication is begging Him to answer and to hear you. And Jesus did this in verse 7 with loud cries and tears. Verse 8. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, verse 9, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of His flesh tells us that Jesus also learned obedience, although He was fully divine. Remember, Jesus in His humanity experienced everything that you and I are, including learning. Having to learn obedience was part of the humanity that Jesus 
experienced. Now think about that. that. That's the paradox that we can't get our brains around. God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is perfect, should obey perfectly. Amen? Shouldn't be a problem. Now, He did. But the Scriptures tell us in His humanity, just as we learn obedience, He learned obedience without sinning, without rebellion, without pride. But He still learned. That's part of the human condition. He learned obedience. That's part of the lesson here in Gethsemane. Jesus learned to trust and obey the Father in the midst of His prayers with loud cries and tears. That's, that's a lesson. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think about this. This may be resonating with some people. How many times have you prayed to the Lord with loud cries and tears and He teaches you something in that? Now, let's look back at verses 39 and 42. We're going to look at these two verses. This is the prayer, the summarized prayer of what Jesus prayed that night. Verse 39 of Matthew 26, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Notice his position. He fell on his face and prayed. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 42, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then Matthew's account in verse 44, it's just a summary that he repeated the same prayer. He did, of course, the account says three times. Mark's account does the same. Jesus expresses here his burden of carrying the cup. Carrying the cup that God the Father gave him to bear. What is the metaphor of the cup? Did God the Father literally give Jesus a cup? No. Metaphorically, he did. Spiritually, he did. The cup symbolizes rejection and vindication. The cup is the biblical language for God's judgment and God's punishment. That's the cup. The cup is God's judgment and punishment and the internal overwhelming wrath of God. That's the cup that Jesus was bearing. But the biblical presentation of God's wrath has less to do with His vengeance and more to do with the Father's great anger and sorrow against what isolated His created from Himself. On Wednesday nights, as we've been going through the prophets, the minor prophets, we see this theme. We've said this before. When God, through the prophets, says, My wrath is coming through judgment, it's never vengeance. It's his anger and his sorrow at what sin has done by separating the Father from his created. That's the wrath. Ironically, the cup of wine here is seen biblically as a positive. When you look at it in Scripture, whenever you see a cup of wine, it's always a positive, yet here it seems to be a negative. Abundant wine was a sign of God's blessing and prosperity in the Old Testament. Lack of wine was a symbol of judgment. 
So the question here is this. Was there any other way for God to save humanity other than by sending the Son to die in our place? Was there any other option? And this is what Jesus was praying. Was there any other option? First, let's establish that it was not necessary for God to save any people at all. Let's just make that clear. It is not necessary for God to save anyone at all. A lot of churches would cringe at that claim. But it's biblically true. God is under no obligation. It is not necessary for Him to save anyone at all. But He was and still is under no obligation to redeem us even now. We are sinners. He is holy. The Apostle Peter, who was with Jesus in Gethsemane, learned this lesson well as seen in his second epistle. If you want to turn to 2 Peter, this helps us understand whether or not it was necessary for Jesus to come. 2 Peter chapter 2 helps us see a lot here. And, and I bring this up because, again, as I said, Peter was present at Gethsemane. Peter was present during all of Jesus' ministry. Peter himself, who denied Jesus that we'll be looking at here pretty soon, learned this lesson very well. This was a time of great isolation. When Peter was writing his epistles, it was a time of great isolation for the church. It was a time of great persecution, and we call it the diaspora of the church. Look here, let's, let's begin in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. 4 through 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The argument here from Peter is this, if God does not even spare angels from their sin, that's a wake-up call to some people. Angels sin? Yep, they did. Some of them did. A lot of them did. If He does not spare the ancient world that was so vile and perverse, but in that He preserved Noah? And his family? If God would not despise, if he, he would not tolerate Sodom and Gomorrah, but he does rescue one righteous lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their suffering and their trials. You hearing that? God the Father knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God did not spare the angels who rebelled, but He cast them into hell. And the, Peter says He committed them to chains of gloomy darkness and keeping them until the great day of judgment. God did not spare the ancient world, but did preserve Noah, 
verse 5. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but He made them an example to history and rescued Lot as a lesson to His own elect. Verses 6-8. through If that's the case, then God knows how to rescue His elect. He knows how to protect the righteous, the godly. He knows how to protect them from suffering and trials. doesn't mean that that they avoid suffering and trials, but but God, through His faithfulness and example, has shown that He can protect His beloved and support His beloved in the times of trial and suffering. In one sense, the atonement... This goes back to the question, is it necessary for Jesus to die? Was there any other option? In one sense, the atonement was not absolutely necessary if understood that God is under no obligation to save anybody. But He chooses to save some, as evidenced here in 2 Peter chapter 2. God chooses to save some. When God chooses to save some, He does so because of His love for His creation. So once God decides to save some because of His love, Scripture indicates that there was no other way for God to save them other than through the death of His Son. That's how the death of Jesus is necessary. Not that God is obligated, but that because of God's love, the only path to redemption was through the death of His Son. Therefore, the atonement was not absolutely necessary But as a consequence of God's choice, His decision, His will to save some, then the atonement was absolutely necessary. So in Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This cup was God's necessary fulfillment of His chosen desire, His willful desire to save some. To save all who believe. To save all whom He calls to salvation and they believe. The cup was God's wrath, His judgment poured out for sinful humanity. But instead, this wrath was poured out upon the Son out of love. This is the cup. The absolute necessary cup required for God's loving salvation. That's the cup. Now, we're wrapping this up. Let's look at abandonment. Jesus suffered the greatest burden. The greatest burden of the cup for Christ Jesus came in the temporary abandonment by the Father. Let's unpack this a little bit. The physical pain of crucifixion and the torturous beatings during his trial, they they were aggravated by the fact that Jesus faced this burden alone. His pain was his alone to bear. He alone had to carry the burden of the absolute evil of all of humanity's sin. All of it. But he had to do it alone. The holy, sinless, new Adam, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrificial lamb, he carried the absolute evil that was not his alone. But he lovingly, he willingly, even under great duress and agony, he accepted and carried that evil for us. He carried the cup of God's wrath and carried the cup of His judgment 
as the father turned his face from the evil that could not be in his holy presence. If Jesus carrying all of the world's evil, all of humanity's evil sin upon him, made it where God the Father could not look upon him, otherwise he would destroy him. Jesus was alone. Even though Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he confided them in in Gethsemane, as soon as Jesus knelt to pray, they abandoned him to their sleep. They could not pray. It was inconvenient after consuming... Think about that. Okay, I'm going to try to give Peter, James, and John a little benefit of the doubt here. Why did they fall asleep? It was late at night, but what had happened? They had just had a large Passover meal. But Jesus still condemns them. Jesus had done nothing but love these disciples. He had done nothing but love all whom the Father in heaven had given Him to love. And in return, all of us abandoned Him. But worse than the abandonment of His beloved friends was that Jesus was deprived of the closeness to the Father. Now I want you to listen to this real carefully. Jesus' ministry always drew from the presence of the Father that loved Him. Always. This close connection with the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were always together. It was the deepest source of joy for Jesus the Son. He had never known separation from the Father. He had never known separation from the Spirit. They were three in one. When Jesus hung on the cross at the moment of His death, He was finally cut off temporarily from the sweet union He had with the Father. This sweet union had always been dependable, had always been constant. But on the cross, biblically, we see evidence that Jesus experienced one last human reality. The isolation that sinful human beings have from the holiness of God the Father. If Jesus had to experience everything that we are, He had to experience the isolation that we as sinners have from the Father. And that brought Him torment and agony and sorrow. Wayne Grudem, in his Systematic Theology, says this, Jesus faced the weight of the guilt of millions of sins alone. Now, how do we take this home? And I promise we're going to wrap this up. It's not another 35 minutes, Tony. Think about this. I mean, what is this? How do do we apply? This is a lesson for us. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane means something. In suffering, much depends on how a person decides to face the suffering. As one discovers the will of God, one can handle what comes with more poise, more strength. And I believe I overheard in one of the Bible studies this morning, you talked about the definition of God's will. It's not just, is it your will for me to make $100,000 a year, Lord? Is it your will that I marry so-and-so? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God's will. Unity and association and communion with Him. Apart from grasping God's will, one can only decline and we can only weaken. Perhaps even turning the suffering and the anxiety we have into a badge of honor, an identity of victimhood. Can we just be honest? 
How many people do we know and how many of us have been guilty of this? In my sorrow and in my suffering, I have attention and I am the victim. Look at me. When one embraces depression and anxiety this way, they actually trade the worship rightly due God for the worship of modern psychiatry and medicine that wishes to manage the depression. I'm just being honest here, folks. Jesus' torment and his agony that night was very real. Just like many, 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 many people right now have a very real depression and a very real anxiety and a very real tormented soul. Not belittling that at all. But Jesus' torment and agony that night led to his fervent prayer that was also very, very real. The answer to our anguish, the answer to our anxiety, the answer to our depression is to turn to the Father in fervent prayer. Not passive prayer, fervent prayer, honest prayer, honest lamenting. God's answer may be to continue in this season of grief and anguish and sorrow. It may be the answer. I'm going to expect you to walk through this, but you're not going to walk through it alone. If you are one of His children, the help of the Holy Spirit will guide us through the worst of times. The answer may be to overwhelm us with peace that eliminates the anguish. Whatever it is, do we accept the God's, God's will? Do we accept the Father's will? Now, Jesus was no victim. He was human. He suffered great anguish and anxiety, yet His honor came in obeying the Father's will, trusting in God the Father that by passing through this great suffering and this crucifixion of His, resurrection would come and would be the glorious end of it all. In contrast, a victim never wants the glorious end to God's will for his or her suffering. A victim never wants God's will for their suffering. A victim wants to wallow in the suffering and this distorts God's will for suffering. It is precisely Jesus' agony and depression. Here's what it teaches us. That Jesus was truly human. <laughs> that Jesus freely obeyed. That Jesus had real courage. If Jesus had not been confused by what was happening around Him, could He have been truly human? Yeah. He had, I mean, there was confusion there as part of His humanity. If Jesus had not been truly human and entirely human being, both body and soul, with emotions in mind, could He have been our human representative before God? He had to experience it all, both soul, body, and mind. Take away Jesus' humanity, and you take away humanity's salvation. What is not taken on by Jesus the Son is not redeemed. So He had to take on even this depressing reality of isolation from the Father for a brief moment. That's why. This was his last, as he's going into death, experience of what it means to be human. Father, where are you? I'm alone. What is not taken on by Jesus the Son is not redeemed. Let me ask you this question in closing. 
How many of us in this room truly know what it means to be in the presence of the Father and then miss it? How many people just say a nice prayer, attend good Bible studies, put on the name Christian, but they don't even know what the presence of the Father is? If you know the genuine presence of the Lord, if you have tasted His holy presence and you know that He is good, in those moments of isolation, it is agony and sorrow. Here's why Hebrews chapter 2 tells us this is it. Therefore, He, Jesus, had to be made like His brethren in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered and been tempted, He is able to help those who are tempted. This, thinking about Gethsemane, this goes even deeper. For because Jesus Himself has suffered and been tempted, He is able to help those who are tempted because Jesus Himself suffered and experienced the isolation and the loneliness apart from God the Father. He knows who we are as sinners and He can draw us home. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we love You. And I pray, God, that everyone who is hearing these words, who have heard your word read, who have heard this experience of your Son, Jesus Christ, and His loneliness and His isolation apart from His disciples, His friends, and more importantly, His feeling of anxiety and isolation from you, I I pray, God, that you would allow that truth to overwhelm us all. I pray, God, that anyone here who is listening to this sermon, who is listening to your word, who just is playing the game with you, who only puts the name of Jesus Christ on like a badge, like a label, but they could care less whether or not you are near or not, Lord, I pray that you would challenge them in this. I pray, God, those of us who may be obedient and faithful enough to embrace and believe that Your Son Jesus paid it all for us. That we depend on His grace and His, His sacrifice and His resurrection, Lord. Those who genuinely are changed by Your Spirit through that grace. I pray, God, that You would never leave us. But in those moments where we feel alone, Lord, I pray that You would, bring, that you would send comfort to us. Keep us ever close, we pray. Lord, Your Word has spoken. Let it do its work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.